Hello and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. And I'm Victoria Hillman. And today we have my good friend, Kian Gilvis. Hi, Kian. Hi, folks. Very Hi, nice Kian. to be here. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. In this episode, we're going to do something a bit different, a bit fun, because this is our Halloween special. We're going to talk about cryptids, and, or you might call it cryptozoology. We'll talk a bit more about that and what it is, and what the animals involved, or I say animals, <laughs> are a bit later. But we'll go straight into the podcast news. Kean is currently based near Cork in Ireland, aren't you, Kean? Yeah. So, Kean, have you had any wildlife sightings in Cork? So, actually, our city is fairly well known for otters. There's um, been quite a lot of research done on them, and uh, I reckon I saw one just a couple of weeks ago um, in, in the River Lee, right in the middle of town, and, you know, not unusual, really. Um, I mean, we're encouraged to report them to groups that uh, record such things, but, yeah, I, I just saw one um, going about its business in the, in the water, and um, just, just for a couple of seconds, I saw the body moving, and... Uh, you know, if you didn't know they were there, you might you might question yourself. But knowing that there is a, an acknowledged population there, even in, in such an urban area, made it kind of kind of special. So, oh, nice! That was nice. Yeah. Can't yeah. be a good otter sighting. No, you no can't. they're wonderful. Anything? Any sightings for you, Vic, at all in the garden? I think no sightings as such because I haven't technically seen them but for the last week or so I've had both pairs of tawny owls calling there's one that basically is out the front of the house and there's one out the back of the house and last few days I've been waking up at quarter past five in the morning and I can just lay there in bed and listen to them calling first thing in the morning which is just lovely Oh, nice. Not the getting up at quarter past five in the morning but the being able to listen yeah. to the tawny owls <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, a plus on a negative they say so about how about you, Neil? Anything for you? Yeah, I mean, I had a trip up to Doors Hall last weekend and enjoyed all the autumn colours there. And I think I saw a sparrowhawk and a buzzard and a few, you know, nothing spectacular, but a nice little walk around. Sounds like it's nice to get out. I had a couple of weeks ago Redback Shrike down near Dungeness. It's still there, as far as I know, on a golf course. And it took a while to find it. I mean, it, was, it sort of tucked itself away. And then it suddenly appeared by this telegraph pole. Uh, some people might have seen the sightings on my Twitter and Facebook pages. And then I'm standing by a fence trying to get a nice angle on it and it flew right past me and sat on a fence post and I very slowly walked towards it and got some really nice close-ups. So it's only a juvenile, so it hasn't quite got the lovely colours of a adult, but, you know, still nice to get close to a shrike because they're spectacular birds. And when was that? Last weekend I went to somewhere not too far away that's got some wild fallow deer and I went into the park walking round and there was another photographer sort of charging around the woods a little bit and flushing the deer a little bit which wasn't particularly good so I went a different direction sat myself down and first this photographer came along and flushed the deer away from me which was a, a bit annoying to say the least then the deer started coming back and then a dog appeared next to me and this <laughs> I'm quite clearly trying to sit there trying to be all tucked away and not disturbing the deer and this dog owner walks up right behind me and starts talking to me. I tried to warn about having a dog off a lead near rutting deer and he just laughed it off and which was a bit disturbing. And then walked straight through a herd of deer, which was <laughs> quite alarming. <laughs> but then eventually the pictures were nice though. <laughs> he just I was waiting for a dog kebab to appear on top of a fellow deer buck, but there we go. But then I sort of got to know the site a bit more sort of slowly walking around these woods and just ended up tucking myself in ditches and <laughs> in the middle of a hawthorn tree and stuff like that and yeah I got quite close I got headshots of the deer in the end the light was awful it was sort of just about to drizzle dark in a wood ridiculously low shutter speeds but you know, I had to crank up the ISO and stuff for the photographers in the audience but yeah I'm quite pleased with what I got actually I have to go back in better light I think and I did actually catch some rutting on video as well so i have to post that at some point so 
Yeah, I don't really do deer usually. I haven't done the rut for oh, must be at least five, six years. So yeah, quite pleased to actually come away with something. I have to admit, like the one thing that I haven't seen in the last week that I have been seeing previously, and I know our listeners would have heard me talking about them, is the red kites that I normally see mm. on the way to and from swimming, and I've actually not seen them. I haven't seen any decent fungi, which is rather worrying. Being that I've been in quite a bit of woodland. Yeah. It's nothing worth stopping to photograph, put it that way. Just a load of moffy and moffy and slug eating, I should say. <laughs> fungi, <laughs> not moffy. <laughs> Ambitious moths. Yeah, rather disappointing, but yeah, disappointing last year with them as well. But there we go. Lots of people posting lots of lovely pictures. I haven't been to the new forest, that probably doesn't help. That usually uh, makes it easier to find fungi, doesn't it? Somewhere like that. Seems like a lot of people have been down to the New Forest recently. Yeah. Judging by the pictures that I've been seeing. Yeah. There's some good ones. Ben Andrew and Daniel Trim post some good ones. Right. Okay. I think it's time to move on to the wildlife news. I'll kick off with a, well, a slightly disturbing story that an SSSI has been shut for seven months. This is a nature site that's open access, except it's now been shut for seven months to avoid disturbing the pheasants so people can shoot them. Um, it's a post by Keggy C, that's two G's, on Twitter, has put the notice up as a no open access. Natural England have approved it. I think we, if we didn't share it, I'll share it on the account if we haven't already. So by the time this is out, it's been shared on there. It's definitely on my UK Wildlife one, I've shared it and commented about it. Yeah, it just <laughs> it's just bizarre. I mean, what's the impact of the pheasant on that site as well? We've, got, we've, we've uh, hinted at that. The official scientific is currently, we don't know. But a lot of people have a lot of suspicions that it's not good. But it just seems ridiculous that they're shutting off open land to protect pheasants. And yet they can't do it on a lot of common land in the New Forest to protect breeding birds from disturbance because of the law. It just seems like a bizarre situation to me. That's in a national park as well. Yes, it is in a national park. Well, <laughs> we all know a joke they are anyway, but <laughs> legislation-wise. Kian, I believe you've got a story. Indeed I do. So my hometown is Cork City and... In terms of wildlife news around here at the moment, most people are talking about the disappearance of a bottlenose dolphin. So anybody from the south of Ireland has heard of Fungi the Dolphin, who is, if, if whether or not he's still on the scene, we don't know, but he's disappeared. So he, his digs were round about the outside of a town, a little town outside of Kerry called Dingle. And for 37 years, He's been reliably in the harbour there almost every single day. He's very fond of people. He's very fond of boats. He he does a lot of interactions and he always has. And he's become a bit of a mainstay of the tourist industry there for a very long time. And only this week it seems that he's not been sighted for, I think it's like something like seven or ten days now. So chances are, you know, he was getting on a little bit. He was approaching the upper end of what you would expect the lifespan to be for a bottlenose dolphin. Anyway, there was a bit of a scare actually already this week when another bottlenose dolphin body washed up on the coast of County Clare and um, the folks who know Fungi well apparently in, in, looked at the footage and declared it wasn't him and you know you can tell of course individual citations based on markings on the body and, and discolorations and stuff like that so it just just he I mean he's bit of a celebrity around here i've been hearing about him since i was a kid and a little, little bit sad but at the same time you know he had a good run and he he was very well regarded well loved and actually broke a record along the way he appears to have been in the guinness book of records for the i think the longest sort of solo living dolphin known being as they are of course usually uh, more gregarious animals good run for yeah him. it's a good age really good age for dolphins so for a wild dolphin yeah 
to follow up to something that we mentioned, I don't know how many episodes ago, but you'll probably all remember that back in mid-July, we had a rare bird visit our shores in the form of a lammergeier or bearded vulture. Incredibly beautiful birds. And this is actually a young juvenile. Well, we now know that this young bird is actually a female and she's been named Vigo. And she was actually hatched in the French Alps last year. And she first appeared over here in the UK around mid-July. She's been seen in the Peak District, Derbyshire, the Lakes, Lincolnshire, Cambridge and Norfolk. And then more recently, she was seen over the sea around out from East Sussex coast. And that's kind of the last sighting of her as we believe she's or they believe that she's now headed back to France and probably back home to the French Alps. So she spent quite a long time here really. You think we're now kind of mid-October, you know, when she, when she left. Great that she she came, she stayed, she survived and has been able to head off back home again. I didn't get round to Canada see her. <laughs> I kept meaning to and then sort of half-heartedly wanted to. Well no, there, there were some interesting photos where apparently she did just land in the road at one point but then there's been a lot of photos that I've seen as well where you know, she's been kind of surrounded by a lot of people as well which which isn't good she wasn't given maybe given as much space as she should have been but you know she she's heading back to France now and hopefully she will find a mate and successfully breed although it'll be probably a few more years yet yeah and we've got good podcast related news Xander Antboy we've had as a guest I should looked up what episode it was he has been nominated for a Nature Biodiversity Network Award for Wildlife Recording and that's in the Young Person Awards unsurprisingly but also Steve Alan as well, been nominated for the Newcomer Award. Well done, guys. And good luck. Yeah, good luck. Hopefully uh, you'll do well. And they both deserve the nominations, that's for sure. And we've got a couple of shout-outs as well. Yeah, we've had some really nice messages come through on various places. So apologies if we miss you out this time. We'll make sure we put you in the next one. But we had a nice message from Tash who said, I thought I had to say thank you for being such an amazing company on my journeys to work. Keep up the great work. I look forward to many more fantastic episodes in the future. So thanks very much that, Tash. I mean, I know we reply to you on privately, but I just want to say thank you publicly as well. It means a lot, all these sort of messages. It does, and it really it really does kind of, I don't know, like make us smile and, and brighten our days. Um, and I just want to give a quick shout out to John Madden, who I've been having an email chat with. First of all, thank you very much for purchasing a copy of my book, John. But also, you know, been asking some questions and about the mole episode and been really enjoying the podcast so yeah thank you very much john and you know hope you continue to enjoy it i had an email with some follow-up but i think we'll put that in the next episode because i'm slightly worried about how much time we'll have in this one so you know who you are we'll put you in the next episode on to the main topic cryptozoology in the uk so kian you're our guest expert as it were could you really explain what cryptids and cryptozoology is yeah, so so broadly uh, i mean this falls into the remit of stuff that I cover on my show as well, which is sort of why people believe weird things. And um, part of that is cryptozoology, which, depending on who you ask more, the, the simplest way to put it is it's sort of like the hunt for unknown animals or animals that are not currently recognized by science. Um, so in, one of the most interesting things about this is that I think almost all biologists and zoologists can agree that there's a large number of living things out there that we don't yet know about or that we haven't um, sort of written up correctly and and described officially and scientifically and yet when we say cryptozoology we're not talking about by and large we're not talking about invertebrates we're not talking about you know small animals we're not talking about some new type of bird we're talking about monsters we're talking about things that are a little more dramatic a little more charismatic the go-to ones of course are the Loch Ness Monster and, and your Sasquatch and your 
your your kind of superstar cryptids like that. So, uh, you know, on one level, you could say all, all, all biologists are cryptozoologists because we're searching for new things that we or new animals are looking to delineate new species if we're if we're splitters <laughs> rather than lumpers. Uh, but then on on the other hand, you've got it is it is by and large generally a um, an, an amateur pursuit, and I don't mean that in a I don't mean anything. Uh, rude or nasty by that um, uh, the, his- the history of science obviously of course is rooted in good work done by amateurs um, but uh, as I presume we'll probably get into later uh, how rigorous a-, a science it is depends on who's doing it and it depends on who's talking about it and writing about it so it it, go- it runs the gamut from people who I think would adhere to the scientific principle to folks who are you know god bless them very excited enthusiasts uh, uh, you know maybe <laughs> not always as critical and maybe more enthusiastic than critical sometimes yeah they start with the point of this animal exists and try and yeah that's you know that's try the and justify problem. it so that's the big problem with cryptozoology i suppose isn't it is that at one end you've got people discovering new species of whale and fish an example might be say the giant squid yeah people used to believe in kraken and then, oh, maybe it was a giant squid all along and, you know, things like that. What's the classic one? The Okapi, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, where people refuse to believe it exists and then they found it kind of thing. I mean, it's not, and, yeah, it's not that people yeah. refuse to believe it existed, yeah. but, it, you know, it, they, they cryptozoologists tend to point to these well-known, now well-known animals that were discovered relatively late in the game. The Okapi was, was described by science in 1901. They usually point to the Komodo dragon described in 1912 and the, you know, the, the African silverback gorillas who were not really taken seriously until the end of the 19th century. And they, they tend to point to those and say this means that it's worthwhile to follow rumors and folklore and stories and then go and search because there might be a reality there. And they point to those stories to, to bolster their case. And some 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 writers will actually, to them, the key thing is is the folklore. They will say, well, it's only really a cryptid if there was a story or a folklore that was not taken seriously by scientists, and then they used that to discover something that was real. And that that's how you delineate a, a quote-unquote cryptid from, you know, just an, un, an ordinary undiscovered species of, let's say, like there was some there was a type of antelope discovered in, in Vietnam in the 1990s, and you know, people don't call that a cryptid because there was no sort of, you know, monstery folklore about it that was debated prior to the discovery. So is that what makes the difference? I mean, you could argue that was cryptozoology before they described it, wasn't it? It's just, yeah, it depends on... I think cryptozoology could cover a span from legitimate creatures that are just waiting to be discovered all the way up to the blurry line between myth and legend and, you know, legendary creatures like vampires and stuff. And Yeah. Well, what we're going to do in this section of the show, we've all sort of picked out a couple of cryptids. The rules we had were they had to be at least mainly sort of UK cryptozoological creatures... I should put a disclaimer at the start now. At no point are we saying these creatures are real. We're just doing something a bit of fun because it's Halloween. Sit back and enjoy <laughs> it because some of it's. Um, I, I'm going to try and not be too um, sarky and <laughs> laugh at everything, but but I do hope <laughs> some of it has. I don't want to say gaping holes, but it has gaping holes in the evidence. <laughs> shall we say <laughs> giant chasms? Vic, would you like to kick off proceeding? Yeah, I've picked two. I've actually gone for, I'm going to put them both under aquatic, so it probably gives away a little bit of what I'm going to go for, but so I thought we had to start with possibly one of, if not the most famous, certainly in the UK, and that is the Loch Ness Monster. 
because let's face it at some point we've all heard about the Loch Ness Monster and we've probably all seen the various images mm-hmm. shall I say of said Loch Ness Monster <laughs> as I said it's probably possibly one of the world's most famous cryptids and possibly one of the most investigated as well and it's actually featured in many movies and TV programs including Primeval Ooh. I do believe Nice. Um, I don't know if it was in Prime Evil. Must be one of the latest series I didn't watch very well. (laughs) (laughs) We're all going to be going back going, was it in there? Was it in there? But it's interesting that for an animal that has been sighted on as many occasions as it has, there are very, very few photographs of it. And when I say photographs, I'm talking about actual proper photographs, not things that could loosely be termed a photograph. (laughs) So the first recorded sightings actually date back to the 6th century, when apparently it was seen by St. Columbia. But if you go to more modern sightings, these date back to the 1930s, and they actually continue to this day, with many people travelling hundreds, if not thousands of miles to try and see it, going on organised tours, um, and you name it. There have been many missions over the years to try and track down the Loch Ness Monster, using underwater cameras, uh, which have apparently revealed glimpses of flippers. People photographing a head with an elongated neck, and strange tracks have been found on the road that runs the length of Loch Ness. But despite a comprehensive sonar scan in 2013 failing to reveal anything, supporters have pointed out that there are a labyrinth of underwater caves where it could quite easily hide out of reach. Witnesses describe a sleek, rubbery, dark animal that's about 20 feet long with a serpentine body typical of sea serpents and lake monsters. I mean, you could do a whole podcast on Loch Ness. There's so much backstory on it. The 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 famous picture of it, you probably know about this as well, Kian, the... Uh, what's his? Uh, I forget the guy's name. The guy that took the picture. He apparently had a the surgeon's photo. That that's one. it. The surgeon's photo. It apparently, <laughs> it was sold to the Daily Mail, and it turns that's out right. the photographer had a grudge against the Daily Mail, that's and he right, wondered yeah. if he was trying to make him look stupid, <laughs> which they do perfectly well on their own these days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> damn, there goes my journalistic career at the Daily Mail. Kian, do you want to give us your first? Cryptid. Yeah, yeah. So I've you got you guys got the big ones. <laughs> so I, I was I was left scrambling for something <laughs> a little more unusual. So I this was something I didn't know existed up until maybe three or four years ago, and I'm absolutely I was absolutely flummoxed to find out that there is a community of people who who believe in this. But we, we'll give it every shot we can. There is a a British type of Bigfoot <laughs> that exists in in certain kinds of circles, and. It is generally thought to be smaller than the American one um, and probably, presumably, lives in smaller numbers. There can't be as many of it around. And most of these sightings are within the last 10 years. This is a relatively recent phenomena. And there are stories, again, from the from the less reputable British papers, shall we say. <laughs> There's a story from 2017 of a guy uh, on his way to Bristol on the train and he looks out the window and he sees this... Uh, bipedal hairy ape-like creature shambling uh, through the fields alongside him Uh, there's a lot of contemporary stories from other parts of the country as well it's not even they're not even linked to like the more remote places and a lot of this seems to stem from in 2015 the american show finding bigfoot did a british episode and this this kind of small community of people who report these sightings i think got a bit of a boost at that time there's a very good article from 2017 from Vice, if you like Vice, 
um, written by a fellow called Harry Rose, who was a British photographer. And he basically dives into this community at first with the intention of just, you know, finding a, a strange new subject to photograph. But uh, event- he describes this whole world of forums and these kind of meetings where people are very kind of shy and they don't want to let insiders or outsiders in and they feel very like they're going to be laughed at and scoffed at and they have these meetings and these chat rooms where they get together and and share their UK Bigfoot sightings with one another in a place where they feel safe. So to come at it from a sort of a folkloric point of view it's very similar to how sort of UFO abductee people behave when they when they get together with other like-minded people to kind of prop up each other's ideas one thing i am interested in and i'm interested in you guys's opinion about this is like so some some of the stats that they they put forward to say look this this could totally happen because for me like the idea of an animal that size you know hiding out in somewhere like north america is one thing and having it happen in in britain is, is another and the numbers they they pull out this is from the office for Nat, uh, natural statistics they they're claiming that 31 percent cover for the country is what they call quote natural now that's a wide category and yet <laughs> that sounds kind of impressive you would you know some of these guys on podcasts like to say oh you know there's there's enough space out there there's enough wild places where something that this size could live and hide and but i'm, I'm interested to hear your take on that well, I, f- I think a hairy ape-like creature could hide in a number of places in Essex. Hi-oh. I'm thinking of town centres <laughs> in many places. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've seen them. <laughs> Did you say it was uh, Bristol? Yeah, one of the one of the one of the more prominent recent sightings was yeah, Bristol. Yeah, you, you know that just would not surprise me, given that I actually live in the southwest. <laughs> <laughs> genuinely wouldn't surprise me well if anyone is interested, <laughs> there is a a map online um, called the UK Cryptid Map and. Uh, mm. You, it's and it's 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 compiled by one of these small organizations, and I'm not going to name any names, but go and have a look and see all the places this thing has been reported and what kind of places it's seen in. It's it's flabbergasting. People people are seeing this and or at least reporting it, and dang, it's it's all over the place. I can't. Someone on Twitter, probably Doctor Nash, tweeted something about. There's one member of this community that will literally look at a picture of some woodland and he'll see a Bigfoot in it. Oh, yeah. That the person took the picture. They call it wouldn't have seen. And just like, mm. it's, it's a known thing. <laughs> yeah. But isn't that that? Um, I wonder if it's that. Apophenia. Uh, oh, what's it called? Was it the, where you see yeah. familiar there, shapes? There's apophenia yeah. and pareidolia. Yeah. That's, just yeah, seeing it. patterns yeah. and random data. It's, it's comes up a lot when you study weird things. Oh, oh, my final thing about British Bigfoot. People often meet it as a child. So the people who, who report this often are reliving memories of being a very, very small child when they see this thing in the woods. So there's all sorts of interesting kind of folkloric connections. You know, people are envisaging it as this kind of protector, like almost like a guardian angel or a guardian of the forest. And, you know, if anyone is familiar with British folklore of the green man or the wood woes, there's all sorts. This could be sort of like a more recent interpretation of maybe a very old folkloric idea. Or they could be just ripping it off from the Americans, I don't know. <laughs> that seems to happen quite a lot with these um, cryptids, is they find some old folklore that fits with it, and sometimes it seems to be a little bit sort of um, square peg and a round hole forced in to, you know, oh yeah, because the, the original site in the Nessie, a lot of people say doesn't really, you know, the 16th century one, 
Um, I've heard a lot of people say it doesn't really fit with the descriptions. Darren Nash wrote the, is it Hunting Monsters, isn't it, the book? That's I'll right, yeah, I've got it here. And, and he talks a lot about yeah. that sort of thing and how people claim oh, all these sightings of Nessie, all these sightings of Bigfoot. But when you actually look at all the details, what people actually say, they all describe completely different creatures or, you know, very different looking creatures, I should say. Yeah, his, he kind yeah. of talks about how the concept of any of these animals is is a nebulous thing it's made up of lots of different things like you said earlier all of the different things that you might mistake for a creature it might be a log or it might be an otter or it might be you know there isn't there's no one solution to the, the nessie isn't one thing he, he's a vast conglomeration of it's more of a psychological question ultimately uh, than a than a zoological one i think well, i mean let, let's face it some people have a real problem and again this was a local thing to me they have a real problem distinguishing a log and a crocodile yeah. Goodness. <laughs> now why you would think there would be a crocodile in a river in the southwest and were people reporting um, this yeah 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 it oh, was goodness. a few years ago yeah was, they were reporting sightings of a crocodile in a river and it turned out it was a log. I mean, that, that's classic urban legend stuff in, in some parts of the world, isn't it? Like uh, <laughs> crocodiles and alligators in unusual places. No, admittedly, there was a caiman found in... It was one of the reservoirs caiman oh, was found. Chew Valley Lake. Um, it was, no way. Chew Valley was Lake, that was there. It was only 50 centimetres long. You should remember this, Kim. We spoke about it on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that was like... <laughs> oh, that it was like ago. either an escapee or yeah. a release. Yeah. Yes, they reckon it had been dumped. But I've got some notes from uh, the Weird Atlantic World podcast. <laughs> I, it's Kian's podcast. I had chatted on there about it. And the notes I got from that were um, the video that from 2014 turned out to be a log. If you look at what, <laughs> it's quite clearly a log. <laughs> it's like, so yeah, obvious. There, there's no way you can actually even no. like partially consider this could be a crocodile. I think someone was just trying it to It is blatantly a log. It could not be more obvious that it's a log. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to go on to my first creature, which is Owlman, who has also been linked to Big Hoot, which is a giant owl stroke owl-like man creature thing. And it's intrinsically linked with the church tower at Mornan in uh, near Falmouth in Cornwall. And that whole area is linked with lots of things, one of which I believe you're going to talk about, Victoria, in a minute. Um, oh, yeah. But also UFO yeah. sightings and various other things. Now, it was first seen by two girls in 1976 who saw a large man-sized owl-like creature fly from the church tower and it was again seen two years later and it's been described as a big owl with pointy ears and the eyes were red and glowing. There's a lot of glowing eyes with these cryptids. 1989, it was seen again. In 1995, a witness described as being halted in my track when about 30 metres ahead I saw a monstrous man-bird thing. It was the size of a man with a ghastly face, a wide mouth glowing eyes and pointed ears. He had huge clawed wings and was covered in feathers of silvery grey colour. And there's all sorts of ghostly theories about it. But some people have linked this to the giant owl called Big Hoot that's been seen in the US, sometimes been linked with the famous Mothman, which was in the Mothman Prophecies film. And the theory goes that this giant owl will migrate across the Atlantic. It's a big owl, after all. And sightings in the US... Uh, one in Rocky Fork Lake in Southern Ohio. She saw, while she was on the lake, they drifted into a cove and old, tall, topless tree trunk, approximately 9 to 10 foot high, moved 4 foot sideways. Uh, so it's right on the shore, 20 foot away. And then it moved again and it's twisted its head round and without making a noise. And then suddenly the wings unfolded 
to a wingspan greater than small aeroplane oh. and with two big eyes watching them and then the sun went down and they lost sight of it but I, I still that's one of my favorite because i'd never heard of it till a few years ago and i used to read all the books and i never saw a big oh, hoot in it which great. was really cool but yeah so there, there's an interesting one a giant owl stroke owl man yeah that has been seen in cornwall which makes sense if it migrates across the atlantic that it land in cornwall why are there no sightings in ireland though i wonder i do have one theory which is that the the, the mothman prophecies film is based on a book from 1976 i think i've got it here in front of me by john keel and so that book was a big hit in, in the mid 70s and one year later you have the first two Owlman sightings in the uk both of which are pretty much traced to one guy who reported them who is this very outrageous kind of like pop art um, magician guy who was called Anthony Shields. So just just putting it out there, you know, the timing lines up. I mean, part of the fascination from a scientific point of view is almost sort of psychological and cultural, isn't it? Just the, the way that one thing seems to feed another. You know, you get one sighting and suddenly you get a spate of sightings, don't you? Mm. But it, it, it's quite interesting because the name uh, Tony Shields will crop up again. With your next feature, as I believe it. Yes, and I'm going for another aquatic creature. This time it's a sea creature, though, or a sea monster. And I've decided to go for Morgoire, which I'm hoping I'm pronouncing correct. This basically means sea giants in Cornish. We're actually staying down in in Falmouth um, for this and this is a sea serpent that reportedly inhabits the sea near Falmouth Bay in Cornwall. Now there's a couple of interesting stories here so we're going to go with the one that dates back the furthest to start with. Back in 1876 a fisherman reportedly discovered it in Garands Bay and it was then seen again on the 3rd of August in 1906. So quite precise dates some of these by two officers Spicer and Cummings from a transatlantic liner as the liner passed Land's End. According to legend so here we're kind of back into folklore and legend again. According to legend the creature actually first appeared near Pendennis Point in 1975 being described as having a trunk with a very long neck and black-brown skin. Local mackerel fishermen blamed bad weather and poor fishing on supposed sightings of the monster. And some versions of the story say the monster appeared after a German submarine U-28 torpedoed a British merchant ship during World War One. described it as 60 feet long, shaped like a crocodile with four webbed feet and a powerful tail. So I guess with any of these, there's, there's a lot of different stories and a lot of different things that kind of come together here but so we've already mentioned Tony Shields well he's going to appear here again because some people speculate that Tony Shields invented the creature as a hoax having coined the name Morgoire after claiming to cite it in 1976 and apparently he sent the Falmouth Packet newspaper I'm not sure if that newspaper still going photographs of the monster attributed to an anonymous individual called Mary Eyre in the same year in July. A couple of fishermen claimed to have sighted the creature off the waters at Lizard Point. And then in staying in 1976, Shield claims to have photographed the creature laying low in the water. So it's a very interesting. I, I do wonder what goes on down in Falmouth, actually. <laughs> but, you know, over the years, it's been regularly sighted by dedicated cryptozoologists and tourists alike. And it's been described as being between about 10 to 24 foot long with greenish grey skin, a huge mouth and small flippers. It's one of the more commonly seen British cryptids apparently, being seen roughly once every five years. I'm not sure when the last time it was sighted. But the legend of Morgoire continues to this day with sightings on 
the stretch of the Cornish coastline known as Morgwell's Mile, between Rosemullion Head and Toll Point. So what you got for us now, Kian? Well, I was going to do Alien Big Cats, but you and I on, on our show last year covered that fairly well, which which I do remember. Yeah. <laughs> I may have forgotten about <laughs> the alligator, but I, I decided to go with something different because we've covered that before. I'm going to talk about the ghostly black dogs, the British black dog phenomena, the, the black shuck, as he's commonly known. So more of a folkloric creature than a truly, crypt, truly crypto, cryptozoological one. But again, like one of the one of the great sort of animal based um, superstitions and legends of, of Britain, and one that although there are there are similar cases in other countries, uh, it's always struck me as a particularly sort of a British phenomena. And one of the cool things about it is that the the spooky spectral black dogs appear in different forms and have different names in different parts of the country. So up in in parts of Scotland, it's known as Lamper. Um, in parts of the north of England, it's known as Padfoot or Bargeist or Bargeist in different places. Uh, round your end, Neil, it's known as the Black Shuck or the Shag or uh, variants of that as well. One of the cool things about it is that there are different there are different versions of it. Sometimes it is a like a helpful spirit. It like appears to you on lonely parts of the countryside. So if you're walking on your own, you know, down a country lane or something, and you might be passing through an area that's dangerous, or there might be, in olden times, there might be, you know, brigands or highwaymen or who knows what. Um, this animal would sometimes appear and walk beside you and then disappear when you were safe once again. But primarily the kind known as the shuck, the black shuck, especially around Essex um, and, 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 and East Anglia, is a, a sort of a hellhound. It's it's a negative, evil spirit. And you can tell because unlike the other black dog spirits, there's always something monstrous about it that makes you know that it wasn't just an ordinary dog that you, you know, saw in, in unusual circumstances. So there's a, a wonderful website called Shuckland where somebody has focused on East Anglia and Essex in particular and collected loads of st- examples of stories of this and broken it down into the different versions of the dog that were seen. So sometimes it's gigantic, like the size of a calf or the size of a horse. Sometimes it has no head. Sometimes it has one eye. Sometimes, almost always, it has glowing eyes, as you mentioned, is a common thing with all of these monsters. So there are numerous different ways in which it can appear to you. I'm going to read a quick story from a book called The Spine-Shooting Book of Monsters by Rupert Matthews. It's from the late 80s. So he writes uh, about a disturbing encounter in 1893. Two men were returning to their home in Norfolk in a cart. Suddenly, they were confronted by a huge black dog standing in the middle of the road. No matter what the men did, the dog would not move out of their way. Losing patience, one of the men approached the dog, which promptly exploded in a ball of flame. A week later, the man died. So that got a... That escalated quickly. <laughs> yeah. I love how it starts as like, oh yeah, sure, they probably just saw an ordinary animal, you know, in the dark and got spooked and then, whoa. <laughs> Finally, the most famous example in all of, of, of Britain probably is the Blytheburg and, and Bungay apparitions. So two towns not too far away from each other. I think they're both in Suffolk. On Sunday, 4th of August, 1577. So this is a, a proper old one. Um, while the villagers were at prayer, the doors of the church suddenly flew open and a black dog ran in. The dark creature ran straight towards the altar. As it passed through the church, the dog touched three people who immediately dropped dead. The claw marks of this deadly visitor can still be seen on the church door. I happen to know that that is the case. Uh, Even today, you can go to that town and see what looked like burn marks on the outside of the church door. Generally, folks reckon there was a tremendous storm on that particular night and that these are folkloric stories that kind of came 
out of the the storm and the damage that was done by the storm to kind of explain it. But I think it's a cool story. Yeah. It was isn't the black shark what inspired Arthur Conan Doyle with the Hound of the Baskervilles? Well, I'm glad you asked, Neil, because <laughs> <laughs> did I? I had notes for this somewhere. So, so yes and no. Um, so he he took a holiday in, down in the south. So he went to a place called Foxtor Mire, which in the book becomes Grimpen Mire down in Devon. And he was staying with a friend called Fletcher Robinson. And on a particular uh, day of bad weather, when they were expecting to be able to go out and walk on the moors, they instead stayed inside and had a fire and hopefully a few whiskies. And uh, Fletcher Robinson told him a story that he claimed later inspired the story of the Hound of the Baskervilles. Which, which is a, it's, it's my favorite Sherlock Holmes book. Um, people have looked into this, and they they have they have a hard time matching a legitimate local um, existing folklore story to the details of the hound in the book. So in the book, the hound is a spectral hound that roams out in the moors and dogs the whoever the the male heir of the family is. And while there are a few cases of spectral hounds um, in places like Buckfastley, which is apparently nearby. They're more like protective dogs and they're more like there's there's a separate tradition called the, the wished hounds who are almost like the, the wild hunt, which is this ancient idea that, um, you know, during the time of a storm, uh, a spectral figure will lead a group of, you know, hellish black hounds across the sky, you know, ghost riders in the sky, in the sky type stuff. So the stories that are in the area where Conan Doyle was visiting are more akin to that. So if he took ideas from actual folklore, he took only the very barest, only only the idea of a spectral hound but he took the location and he also apparently he did meet somebody by the name of Baskerville who was there and politely asked them if he could use their name in his next uh, novel oh that's interesting yeah so yeah I'm, I'm through with Black Shark obviously it's a, a friends from Suffolk and Norfolk it's a, a bit of a bigger thing there if you know what I mean it's more sort of well known marvellous and I know I think the Suffolk and Norfolk one like you say the, the legend is something along the lines if you see it you're usually dead by the end of the year or yeah, it's one of those sort of things. Harbinger of death. That's right. And I've got a, a book called Black Dog Folklore by Mark Norman, who's who's a folklorist, and he makes the point that um, I didn't know this. Like the black dog in in some parts of of Britain is almost like the Irish banshee in that it you know it's heard howling and then a member of the family dies and they're attached to a particular family, kind of like in the way of the Baskervilles in the book. So that's cool. I'm gonna. F- do the last creature and I picked the most Halloweeny <laughs> that's a new word I've invented <laughs> of all the creatures I'm going with werewolves now bear with me because that sounds like oh, talking about I thought you were going to do the were-rabbit oh. well I'm, I'm coming to that I'll come to that uh, were-creatures then I'm going for all inclusive <laughs> I imagine most people are familiar with lichens or whatever you want to call them you know we've had fictional ones Various film, American Werewolf in London is probably the f- most famous horror film. Dog Soldiers, a bit more recent. I was going to say recent, but it isn't that recent. Same as Underworld. <laughs> <laughs> Quite old films now, aren't they? And of course, Buffy Vampire Slayer had werewolves in. Good old Seth Green. And t- just whisper it, Twilight. Let's, not, let's skip over that. That's horrible. So usually the legend goes in anyway. If you get scratched or bitten by a werewolf, you then turn into a werewolf on nights of a full moon or sometimes it's either side of the full moon as well. Obviously, there's loads of stories throughout folklore and history but believe it or not there are actually more recent claimed sightings of werewolves there's the dog man of lincolnshire that supposedly has been in the area since the 1600s the main story of this one is 95 when the local grimsby officer for security at a caravan site was informed a security guard had found something that looked werewolf like <laughs> running around 
a, this trailer park, caravan park. Great description. Um, and when this guy arrived, um, he found a van that was empty on the street, no one inside. There was terrified locals hiding nearby, calling at him to run, saying the huge wolf with bright eyes had chased off the previous security guard. And the story in the paper says the guard never returned to work. They don't say <laughs> if he just called in one day and went, yeah, you're not coming back now, that freaked me out. Or he just disappeared. I, don't say <laughs> I suspect he just quit, <laughs> but they didn't. They didn't really detail that. Do you think they said like he never came back to work until the next day? But then you know, yeah. that, they got lost in the in the publication somehow. It does sometimes, doesn't it? But <laughs> the big werewolf area is Canuck Chase, which is rather like Falmouth. There seems to be a few hot spots of paranormal activity in the UK, and Canuck Chase is another one. There's a great long history of UFOs and all sorts of weird phenom- phenomena in the area. There's an old story around in 1975, someone supposedly sold their soul to become a werewolf. Then when he phoned a friend, the phone was dropped on the floor and all we could hear was sort of noises like a dog at the other end of the phone. Later on that year, some supernatural investigators turned up in the area in an attempt to see it. And members claim they saw a growling creature stand up onto its hind legs and then flee in the direction of nearby vegetation. There's 20 sightings since then. Classic one was April 26th, 2007, in the Stafford Post reporting a rash of sightings of a werewolf-type creature, basically in the area around the German War Cemetery there, though other accounts say the Austrian War Cemetery. Several witnesses claimed to see a dog-like creature stand up on its hind legs and run away from them. The first person was this postman, but this is in the daytime, weirdly. You know, werewolves are meant to come out at night, obviously was near the cemetery on a motorbike and he thought he saw a large dog and as he got closer it stood up on its hind legs and ran away. A scout leader saw a big dog, slammed his car door and again up onto its rear legs and running away. But to add to the mystery there's reports of several pets going missing in the area and good old mutilated animal carcasses which is you know no good cryptid or alien occurrence doesn't have mutilated animal carcasses does it? It gets even more weird and X-filey when you talk about the urban myth that in World War Two, the England and United States governments carried out human experiments and one of them was crossbreeding a human with a pig. <laughs> according to the story, and it escaped, you know, like some sort of horror movie, and it was sighted in the area, reported to be seven foot tall with the head of a pig, including a giant snout. And, you know, they're saying, well, couldn't it not stand? They did it with a wolf as well. Maybe that explains the sightings. Um, And there's another theory. Well, it's quoted from a paranormal expert, but no name, that they are (laughs) subterranean Stone Age thrownbacks that have lived in the old mines in Canuck Chase for centuries and come up to hunt for deer periodically. But my favourite bit was there's a, a bit of footage, and they've got a screen grab from the footage, of a wolf-like creature that was taken in the woods in 2009. The footage depicts a tall creature standing on two legs and looking suspiciously like a werewolf. The apparent lichen is then seen pausing before eventually moving into the tree line. And they claim that no one has yet been able to explain this. They obviously haven't thought of a man in a suit. <laughs> <laughs> Walking off, and literally, it's like four pixels high. You know, it's one of the you know, as the great Futurama once when they're talking about Bigfoot, saying it's known to inhabit blurry and out of focus areas. <laughs> it's its known habitat. Yeah. I think it's a case of that, really. But I think I'll finish on with were creatures. Uh, we've had pig humans and wolf men. Well, how about were rabbits? See, I've always thought were rabbit was a creation of the twisted minds of Ardman Animation, who brought us the brilliant. 
Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep. If you haven't watched Wallace and Gromit and The Curse of the Were Rabbit, you should go and watch it now because it's one of the best British films ever made. But you switch... definitely need to go and watch it. Oh, <laughs> and a rock formation called the Roaches, which is in the Peak District, there has been sightings for decades. The area is popular with hikers and stuff, so lots of people walking through there, and they see some weird creatures that are said to have huge, wide, set black eyes, a long snout and black nose, and muscle legs with long feet, um, which gives you a bit of a clue, really. And they've been called the were-rabbits, because they, they run and jump faster than rabbits and look bigger than them. But they've never harmed anyone. I think they just seem harmless. They seem to just run away from people all the time, or hop away from people. But then it turns out that anyone who's a fan of non-native alien creatures in the UK will know that the Peak District is known to be an area that has a colony of red-necked wallabies. So people oh, think it's just them that's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, so basically people have released a load in the area and they've, you know, because Tasmania's got a fairly temperate climate. It's not, you know, it's quite similar to wilds, really. They do okay here. And that's probably what it is, a reasonable explanation. I, I once lived near Box Hill in Surrey and uh, there were stories of the Box Hill beast there, which in some tellings is like a, you know, a big cat, mystery big cat. But in other tellings, is like a kind of an out of place uh, like wallaby or kangaroo. And actually, I, I worked with a guy who was a pretty good ecologist who reckoned he'd seen one. And there had been a sort of ranch or whatever you call them in the area for those animals. And it seemed like it was a bit of a thing. Yeah. And they're quite good at jumping. Yeah. So they're quite good at escaping. So uh, <laughs> it's, for, for, to be quite honest. Well, there's a set of six or arguably seven. Well, actually, wait, eight or nine. We have quite a few there, didn't we, of different cryptids. There is loads of them. Go on that UK cryptid site, um, as Kian suggested, and you can see. Yeah. It's amazing what people claim to have seen in this country. It's, uh... It really is. But, I, I mean, for me, I think it's really interesting. There's a lot of links back to folklore as well. I mean, you know, there's a lot of folklore surrounding, like, the UK, you know, depending on where you are, obviously it varies quite a bit. And it is actually really interesting when you when you really kind of get stuck in and you start reading about it. Yeah, and if you're interested in that sort of thing, there's a podcast that covers that sort of thing. I'm trying to think what it's <laughs> is, called. Is there? <laughs> Ken, would you like to mention this podcast that covers this sort of topic and various, and just explain I, what it's about, really? I certainly will. Very quickly, my show is called Wide Atlantic Weird. Uh, it's a podcast about why people believe weird things. We pride ourselves on being uh, critical, but not cynical. So, yes, we're interested in what's really going on, but we're not out to make fun of anybody or have a go at people. Uh, I think probably if you get down to the nub of it, we all believe something weird. But, uh, yeah, I like to investigate uh, stories about monsters, ghosts, UFO stuff. Uh, but also we, we, we get into the political weird beliefs as well, just because that's so crucial and important right now. So we do some serious stuff as well. But uh, yeah, critical, not cynical. Uh, White Atlantic Weird is the name of the show. And uh, we'd love you to check it out. Yeah, so, so where can people find you on Twitter and places like that? On Twitter, I am called at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, I'm called White Atlantic Weird Podcast. Excellent. Yeah, so go check it out. Is it two podcasts? Some of you now, three. I three, think or maybe we it's three now. About, actually, yeah. We talked about British British mystery animals, yeah, for sure, and we talked about Day of the Triffids, and we talked about lies about wildlife, fake news about wildlife. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, we need to cover that on this podcast at some point. Ah, oh, good excuse to get you back on. <laughs> I'd, I'd be honoured. Yeah. yeah, thanks so much, Ian. <laughs> yeah, Victoria is selling lots of things now, aren't you, on your website? Yeah, I've actually just completely revamped and redesigned my website. Um, so there's kind of new shop on there. And if you pop on there, you might see some adorably cute little handmade felted British woodland mm, wildlife probably... creatures. 
which I've started doing. So yeah, please do go check it out and have yeah, a look. I've got nothing to plug at the moment. I'm still tempted to do a pond creature calendar, but I think I've left it too late again. But if you if you really want one, let me know and I'll actually pull my finger out and do it. Yes, I hopefully have some book related news to mention, but I'm not sure what I can say yet. It's not my book, but it's I'll be strongly <laughs> involved. Yeah, how's your book coming on, Neil? I've changed to what it is now and I've actually probably written more of in, in it's, it's not a book yeah. anymore yeah, in, a, yeah. in a week I think I've written more than I've written in two years of the other one so I'm now focused on what I'm doing with it I know exactly what I'm doing with it because of this other project it's meant I've got to, I've been able to pick what I'm doing exactly so it's good it's helped me focus good. So, uh, so I think that's it from us isn't it have anything else to mention just you can find us online at UK Wildlife Podcast on Facebook, UK Wildlife Podcast, all one word on Instagram, and at UK Wildlife Pod on Twitter as well. And we're also on Pinterest as well now, if you look at UK Wildlife Podcast. And we have a Facebook group, so if you search for UK Wildlife Podcast Community, you can join the group and then you can post your own stuff, and uh, we're just trying to get that going a bit as well. Yeah, so let us know what you're seeing and hearing. Um, yeah and suggestions for topics and guests and that kind of thing that's, I think that's it from us so thanks once again for joining us Kian. Yeah, thank you so much it's been great to have you on we'll see you all next you. time guys bye bye take care bye